0: Today's message originated in the pulpit of Covenant Community Church by lead pastor, Alan Ellis. Covenant Community Church lives to glorify Christ by making disciples who are growing in relationship with God in worship, then with the church in fellowship, and with the world in witness. Now, here's today's message.
1: If as a result of our announcement of dis- of uh, the subject of the book of Job for Len, if that has caused you to pick up your Bible and read some of it, you already have uh, become familiar with this statement that uh, Davis Hen- Hankins makes about the book of Job. He says, as the early Christian scholar Jerome put it, the book of Job is like an eel, since the more one tries to contain it, the slipperier it becomes. Now, that was made by uh, Chrysostom, uh, Jerome, excuse me, who of course gave us the the Latin Vulgate version of the Bible. So when we uh, read the Book of Job, when we hold the Book of Job in our hands, when we open our Bible to the Book of Job, as we saw last week, we're holding one of the most ancient texts, probably the most ancient text in all the Scriptures, um, the earliest copy that we have of it, I think, is around the year 1500 A.D., which means that Job existed for uh, possibly um, better than 2,000 years before the earliest copy that we have of it. So as a result, uh, thus the slipperiness of the book of Job. I would caution you if you're going to read the book of Job uh, that there are really answers for the the question concerning uh, human suffering. Of course, we've called this series sacred suffering are really not contained in the book of Job. If you're looking for answers, uh, you're better off to go to the New Testament for the question of suffering, which is something we attend to do uh, during Easter. Um, But Job does provide us uh, an honest exploration of the issue. And the issue is, why is it that God allows people who really haven't done anything wrong to go through some of the most horrendous things that a human being uh, can go through in their life? So we uh, will spend the time during Lent exploring the issue and anticipating that on Easter day and an Easter season following that uh, Jesus will more fully flesh out the answers to the questions that have been raised uh, during the season. But if if you're reading through the book of Job, a simple understanding or a way of dividing the book of Job uh, is this. Uh, it's kind of like two slices of very thin bread which contain a very thick sandwich content of multiple and diverse items. So the first slice of very thin bread is the prologue, which basically tells us the story of uh, that Job was a good man. Hasatan um, or Satan, the Satan is the proper translation. He's kind of like a a prosecuting attorney in God's court, suggests that uh, there is a flaw in Job's character. And the flaw that the saint suggests to God is that Job only serves you because he gets all this good stuff. He's got a wonderful family. He's the richest man in the world, all this stuff. That's why he serves you. And that if you take that stuff away, Job won't serve you anymore. And really, we we talk about Job's test and Job's affliction, but really, this is uh, the Satan is really putting God in the dock, putting God on trial, and so God. Uh, takes up Satan's offer, and he says, okay, you can take everything that he has. So 10 funerals later, and going through the bankruptcy courts, um, Job loses everything, and yet we get to the end of chapter one, and we see that Job still maintains his integrity. Satan comes back. Now, this is all in the prologue and says well you didn't really let me get under his skin you know we have that phrase that person really got under my skin skin you see is what that that living organism epidermis that protects us it protects what is beneath and satan says you didn't really let me get under his skin to the real the vital organs of Job's integrity. If you let me get under his skin, then I can guarantee you that he's going to curse you to your face. And God says, okay, you can get under his skin, but you can't take his life. And Job is afflicted with boils, which is no one exactly knows what that affliction is, but they can certainly describe it. Um, it would be as though a corpse is rotting, but the corpse is still alive. Uh, Kind of the walking dead kind of thing. And still, even though after 10 funerals of her children and watching her husband be destroyed, losing everything, uh worldly goods in this life and now losing his health and at the point of death his wife says just curse god job apparently i'm overwhelmed by the information that i'm perceiving here but apparently you have done something so horrendous that god is mad at you there's no way back you can't get out of this so just curse god and and then at least You'll be over with your suffering. And Job replies, it's not for us as human beings to just accept the good things from God and not accept also the bad things from his hand. And his friends here of his sad demise, Bildad, Eliphaz, and Zophar, and they travel from far faraway places to come, and they're so overwhelmed by uh, the visual of Job sitting on a dunghill scraping his pus-ridden body that has worms eating away at his body with a with a piece of broken pottery that they sit with him silently for seven days. Now, I don't know about you. I mean, I'll come and sit with you for a while, but seven days and nights and not say we're there. This is one of the reasons why we believe that that what we're reading here is not really history, but that it's a, a, a literary masterpiece that has been crafted together. Because normally we would say nobody could do that, seven days and seven nights. But it's to emphasize in a literary way that these people were just so at a loss for words when they saw what had happened to Job, that all they could do is sit in silence for seven days. I also believe that it's an emphasis on prayer. You know, people that are in trouble, the best thing you can do for them is to be with them and to pray for them. And as we'll see in the unfolding conversations that take place, the the conversation between Job and Job's comforters, as we've come to know them, it gets more, ends up being more heat than light. The conversations get shorter. There's more anger, more vehemence, less answers. And in, in fact, Zophar, who has, uh, as we'll see, he actually goes missing during the third cycle of conversations and doesn't respond at all. Whether he's given up, whether he got on his camel, went home, for whatever reason, he's Uh, A place for a speech has been left for him, and it's not there. That's the prologue. That's the first thin uh, slice of bread. And then we go into the dialogue portion of uh, the book of Job, which begins in verse 1, as you heard me read this morning, of chapter 3, and goes on to the very last chapter of the book, verse 6. And then we have the epilogue, another thin piece of bread. And and most people, when they say they know the story of Job, Job, they've they've eaten those two slices of bread. They know how it began. They know what happened to them. But let's skip that meaty stuff in the middle, and let's get to the end where the good stuff. And if that's your book of Job, how can I say that? Say this. It's not my book of Job. If you just want the, you know, uh, I'm searching online Google for movies on Job. Maybe we could find something to show on Good Friday night that would kind of visually display. There are no movies on Job uh, to speak of. I think it would make a great movie. Uh, It would probably make a better movie than Risen. We shall see. But that's the Job that most people know. And most people know about two and a half chapters of Job, me included. And what's in the middle, yeah, there are a bunch of people whose names I can't remember, and there was a lot of talk, and then God shows up, and but it's it's all good. We do not know. Our culture does not you know, that's become a very popular phrase in our culture. It's all good. Our culture does not have one iota of understanding of what that phrase encompasses. When Christians sing, "God is good all the time, all the time is good," most Christians don't have one iota of understanding what that means. That means, "in the good times and in the bad, God is good all the time, all the time. So that's an easy way of understanding. And on your right here, we've uh, we and this is kind of strange for us because we spend Lent usually in the wing, but we've moved over here because on March 5th, as you've heard, uh we'll be the the go will be sharing our sound system. So we're trying to get it all uh together here for that to happen. Uh but on your right you'll see um this is this is actually plate number two. It's entitled Satan Before the Throne of God. It's a watercolor uh, that was painted by a man by the name of William Blake, who lived between a British poet and artist, between 1757 and died in 1827. He was, as history bears out, a man of ferocious intellect and vigorous imagination. He was not what you would call an orthodox Christian in any respect in many ways. He was unorthodox. I don't think that, but I may not know en- enough about him. I don't think that he was heterodox. Um, but I, th- I think that there were some aspects of his uh, devotion to Christ and his understanding of Christianity that made a lot of people kind of wonder whether he was in fact a Christian. As I said, he was a poet, but he was also a theologian. He was an engraver, which means that you take a small kind of steel tool and you'd take a copper plate and you would carve into that copper plate in reverse the image that you would want to present so that the carvings that you would make in the plate, once it was wiped over with ink and then carefully wiped off so that only the ink remained in the recesses of the carving and then a piece of paper was laid uh, laid over it and it was impressed and that that was the engraving process so think of the not only the ferocious intellect of the man but the the talent the skill of the man that he was capable of doing this not only an image in reverse but also the writing on the that surrounded the borders of these images he also wrote in reverse can you imagine spending Hours and hours on a plate and making one wrong move and you would have to start over again. So there are 22 plates, uh, in this series for the book of Job. And the interesting thing about it, about this is that the watercolors came earlier in his life. And then later on in his life, around 1825, just shortly before he passed away, he kind of cemented Uh, the images in the engraving versions. And what, uh, I will do for us is that this week I will, Lord willing, um, print out all 22 engravings on sheet size paper so that you can take a, you can take a look at his illustrations of the book of Job from, from the opening cover plate right to the end and see the sequence of the story and how Blake understood it. Samuel Tung says that Blake was fascinated by Job's trials and returned to the story again and again. It was actually a theme of his life. And, but Blake's, Blake was not a fan of denominational Christianity, He was certainly not a fan of the Church of England, and so his religious beliefs were, are, can be best described as idiosyncratic. Uh, he was, in fact, hostile to organized religion, but he had a deep reverence for the text of the Bible. So this is a man that would probably be considered to be a hero in uh, in our day, but in his day, um, to a great degree, he was penniless and unacclaimed. So I, I want to show you this engraving and well the next slide will show a closer up, up but this is the the cover page for uh Blake's illustrations of the book of Job this is the title page and then follows 21 numbered plates this plate on this watercolor is the watercolor of plate number 2 um so plate number 1 can be seen in uh Better in this. This is, as you can see, this this is Job and his wife under a tree. All ten children are gathered around him. The sons on his left and right. His three daughters uh, closest to both Job and his wife. Um, you can see over um, the sons on the left. You can see what you can't make it out, maybe, but it it is a gothic church. Um, Blake is making a commentary here. You, you see, you might recognize as minstrel instruments hanging from the tree. This picks up on the psalm that says that while in captivity, the Jews hung their harps on the willows and they lamented that they were no longer in Jerusalem. And Blake is telling us is that Job's family is a very pious family. They trust in their piety There, as you can see, the sons are kneeling, their hands are folded. But there is no joyful expression in Job's family. What's interesting is the last plate, and I'll print this out for you, plate 22, goes back to this first plate and takes Job's family, the same sons and daughters, and Job and his wife, and puts the instruments in their hands. And Blake is convinced that he has found the secret to understanding the book of Job. What is really the message of the book of Job? And so this is the first impression. Then you go from this plate to that plate. Satan before the throne of God. And we have, uh this is the engraving version which came later. Than the watercolor version. And there are some changes that uh, Blake, uh, as I said, cemented into the engraving. As I said, he did that a couple of years before he passed away. And so earlier on in his life, 1810 or so, when he was doing the watercolors, he kind of developed how he wanted to express this. And so what was suggested in the watercolors, he finally got to the final way he wanted it. To look in the engravings. So I'll print out the engravings and you'll have a chance hopefully to compare and contrast. So there are some changes between the watercolor and the engraving. This is what Blake thought about um, the book of Job. This is by Henry Summerfield. Job suffered because he obeyed the law but was ignorant of its inner meaning, the gospel. And we we covered this. This is where we ended last week. But you'll see in this um, watercolor here that Job has on his lap, and maybe you can go back to that so people can kind of compare and contrast the slide before. Job has in both, he has a book on his lap. And he's holding the book with his left hand, and he's got his right hand. You see that? He's got his thumb on a passage of Scripture. His wife has a book on her lap, and she's looking down at the passage that Job is pointing out. Job is pointing out this passage of Scripture to two angelic messengers that you can see here. They have wings. That's how we know they're angels. But in their hands, both angels have scrolls. And that's the key to understanding Satan before the throne of God. What is going on in this scene on the earth, and then this scene in heaven. That's The prologue gives us that perspective. There's We switch back and forth. What was going on in Job's life on earth? What was going on in heaven while Job was reacting, responding? You see that Job's son reclining on some kind of a couch over here has a scroll in his hand. You'll see that the son standing over there has a book in his hand. And if you compare the first scene where they are very pious, what Blake is saying is that there, is, there has been some discussion, some disagreement that has broken out between Job and his family as to how a man becomes right before God. Job is saying a man becomes right. This is what Blake has Job saying. Job is saying a man come, becomes right before God because he maintains his integrity according to the law. In heaven, here is the picture of, oh, well, we won't go into Blake's understanding of God because it's uh, prolix, but for for... To simplify, this is Job's impression of God sitting on the throne. Of course, we know from the book of Job that there was a day when the sons of God came together and God was holding court. And so around God, three people, three of these sons of God on either side. And before God's feet, there is a book, you can see here, and there is a scroll. This is the Lutheran concept of maintaining the proper distinction between The law, which is pictured as the book, and the gospel, which is pictured by the scroll. There is a dispute here. And Job brings up this question. We'll find it in one of his speeches in the book of Job. How does a man be, how is a man justified before a righteous and holy God? Now you may remember if you're here last week that I said Job to the Old Testament is the same as Romans is to the New Testament. That's a, that's a, uh, that's a, I've been thinking about that phrase all week. How is Job like the book of Romans is to the New Testament? We know the book of Romans to the New Testament stands as the gatekeeper to the, the rest of the letters written in the New Testament, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. And then we have. Uh, the book of Romans. Uh, we know that the doctrine of the New Testament church is constantly in surveys of the of men who changed the world. The apostle Paul will come in as number two and Jesus will come in as number three. Or Paul will come in as number one or Jesus will come in as number two. Why is that? We would say that Jesus should come before Paul because Jesus founded Christianity Um, but Paul had such an influence in the church, in the development of the church, in the teaching of the church, that a man was justified by faith, right? And not by the works of the law. Now, when we think about it in the book of Job, this is the, this is the same dispute. How is a man justified before God? Is he justified by the rightness of his actions? Or is he justified by the mercy of God? Job is saying, Blake has Job saying here, look, I'm pointing out this passage. It was called divine retribution. Even in the New Testament, we still have it. The Apostle Paul quotes that verse of Scripture, whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. Job says, this is, This is how God works. If you do the right thing, God will bless you. If you don't do the right thing, God will not bless you. Well, what happens in Job's life then? His doctrinal understanding of how a man is right, how a man should be in right relationship with God, is turned upside down because he's done the right thing. He's a perfect man for his whole life. And then his, he is being treated by God as though he is the worst of the wicked. And his friends show up and that's the only conclusion they can come to is, yeah, you've done, you've done something to offend God and God doesn't like what you've done. And if you'll just repent of what you've done, then God will take you back and make things better again. Uh, that was Job's doctrine. His children, you see the dispute that this son here has a scroll in his hand, as of, as often young people do, question the traditional values and ways of their parents and their grandparents. This is the story that Blake is telling us. So here then, what are the other figures in the figures in, in, in heaven? Uh, Blake uses an I hope that it's not offensive to you. It's not meant to be offensive to you, but Blake uses nudity as a way of portraying innocence. And typically in any, in any kind of artistic presentation, nudity is used in that way. Satan, Hasatan, the accuser here, is leaping across heaven. And in his wake, this is why, uh, why Blake is loved by so many. He has this hellish, kind of framework that is kind of the road that he's flying across. And his left hand is higher than his right. The left hand is the hand of uh, subterfuge, the right hand. Uh, we, we, we welcome you into our church and we give you the right hand of fellowship. Most people, when we shake hands, we extend our right hand. It's the covenant hand. But uh Blake is saying a lot here about left hand being sinister, right hand being um right with God. So this fellow here is one of the sons of God. He has a book in his hand. He's looking at St. Hasatan, the Satan, and he is supporting Satan's accusation that Job doesn't serve God for nothing. Job is serving you, God, because... You're giving him something. And he's got a book in his hand. He's leading, as is pointed out, with his left foot. These two sons of God over here who have a scroll are against uh, the Satan's accusation. They are arguing against uh, this idea that a man is justified uh, by his works, that, that's, that it's just an even exchange. It's a quid pro quo type thing. You do the right thing, I'll bless you. You don't do the right thing, I won't bless you. Job, you're not being blessed, so you must have done the wrong thing. That's the argument that the friends uh, present in in uh, eight speeches. Job's response is in ten. You say, what are these faces here? These are the faces, again, replicated of Job's wife, and Job himself caught up in the fiery maelstrom that is about to befall them. It's really, as was said, uh, one, one guy said it's the most intriguing of all the plates of, of the 22 plates. If you understand, if someone explains to you what's going on in the painting, you look at the painting and visually... You can take in, in one look, what textually it might require you an hour of reading to understand. You can look at the picture and now the full impact in a full orb, kind of fleshed out way, hits you visually. It's like the difference between reading a book and going to the movie. So this is this then is Blake's contention that there, there's a problem here. We know there's a problem. The problem is my life was going great, and now all hell is broken loose. What happened? Well, what happened is that James tells us, right? Here we have now a benefit that Job did not have. We have the apostle James chide, chiming in, who says, this is really about a story about God's mercy and God's purposes in a person's life. Job is, uh, in the engraving version, here in the watercolor version, we have this kind of, well, it's kind of a, a table sofa here, and underneath there's a dog. But in the engraving version, we have the dog, and over here there's a divider, and then books are there, and it's Blake's way of saying... That Job trusted in his livestock, what he owned, and he trusted in the law. God's purpose in, in this situation then is to readjust Job's attitude. That you cannot trust in your, in your own perfect application of the law to develop a life that is going to be pleasing to me. You're going to have to rely on My mercy for you to come into right relationship with me. So Job suffered because he obeyed the law, but was ignorant. He was, as Blake is showing us here, he he was argumentatively ignorant. He was like, he's like, I'm I'm going to defend. And constantly throughout the book of Job, Job maintains his innocence. I haven't done anything wrong. I haven't done anything wrong. I haven't done anything wrong to deserve this. That's why Job is to the Old Testament as the book of Romans is to the New Testament. All have sinned, you see, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. If, as Paul tells us in the book of Galatians, we read it this week, if a man is justified by the works of the law, then Christ has died in vain. Moses Maimonides, uh, one of the earliest Jewish commentators on the text, held that Job began as a man who, knowing God only in tradition, possessed piety, but he lacked wisdom. He's a good man. We have never met. The goodness that was in the person of Job. And if you read his speeches and if you read what the friends have to say about him, it becomes abundantly clear. Job was not a stingy, wealthy person. He was a giving person, he was a loving person. And it makes the contrast, it makes the dispute then that God apparently has with Job that much more difficult to understand. All right, now, so there's some kind of pedantic work that we have to do here, and I beg your indulgence, but here I'm just going to show you then in the bulk of the book of Job, that that meaty part in the middle that begins at chapter 3 and goes to verse 6 of chapter 42. There are three cycles of speeches. You just might want to write this down. If in fact you're going to delve into uh, the book of Job and, and try to understand it, there's some cautionary advice that I would give to you. So there's There's three cycles of speeches here. The first cycle involves, again, they're repetitive in the sense that Bildad speaks first, and and then Eliphaz, Job responds, and Eliphaz speaks, then Job responds, and Zophar speaks, and Job responds. So you can see that there are basically, in the first cycle, there are six speeches. Then you go to the second cycle, and it follows that same pattern again. Eliphaz speaks, Job responds. Bildad speaks, Job responds, Zophar speaks, Job responds. And then we go into a third cycle of the same thing. And the only difference in this cycle is that Zophar, for whatever reason, he gets a text or whatever from home, he's absent. He's not there. Got to go, got to run. We don't know why. The book of Job, probably of all books in the Bible, is one of the most textually ambiguous books that we have. Uh, the scholars take a look at it and they say, ah, there's something missing here. No, uh, Job wouldn't have said that. Job 28 is a, is a, is in the ESV. It is Job's praise to wisdom. But Job's praise to wisdom in chapter 28 is unlike what he said before in the book. And so there, there's lots of, there are, there are ver- passages. If you saw, if you you recognize as I read Mitchell's version of chapter 3 that he skipped two verses because he don't he doesn't think that those verses are legitimately belong to the text. We won't get into all that, but it could be that Zophar's speech just went missing. We don't know. So let me give you just and I will do this as quickly as possible. It's 12:26. Just give me about Five or ten more minutes, and then we'll be done today. This is Francis Anderson, again, the number one commentary on the book of Job. He's talking about, this is his advice at the beginning. If you're going to read these conversations between Job and his friends, remember this. He says, it is hard to know what to call this section. He's talking about what begins in chapter 3 and ends in chapter 42. He says, quote-unquote, discussion. Makes it sound as if some scholars are talking about a problem. You know what? You, you go, you, your friend is at the hospital. You receive a frantic call. Um, we've been in an accident. You go to the hospital and what do you, you sit down beside your friend and you say, hmm. Now, theoretically, what does this imply about your relationship with God? We all know. That that is not the time for it. But after seven days, you see, that's, that's what we have in the book of Job. After seven days, when your friend may be struggling, maybe with a loss of a loved one, with bad news from the doctor, a million and one things, right? Even now, God may be having a conversation with the saint in heaven and say have you considered my servant and i'm like you know what jesus i love you but don't be talking about me don't be talking about don't be suggesting that i'm the guy that hasatan should take a look at just leave me alone god okay and job basically does says this he said he accuses god of being a watcher You're watching everybody, God. You're watching for people just to mess up. You have you. You and I have never heard a person praying as honestly and passionately and as angrily and as full of much pathos and lamentation as we have in the Book of Job. That's why the book is valuable. You know when when. We heard Job say it in the beginning. He, he did not curse God, but he cursed the day on which he was born. He He's actually appealing to God. Let, let's go back in a Genesis 1 kind of way. Let's go back in time, God, and let's just undo the day I was born. Just let me die on the day that I was born. Would to God that my father did not receive the news of my birth with joy. Would to God that there were no breasts that fed me, no knees that cuddled me. God damn the day I was born. You say, well, I don't talk like that. Well, have you had happened to you what happened to Job? Are you trusting in your piety because you don't cuss? Or at least you don't cuss when anybody else is around that would overhear it. You just cuss in private. You say, oh, well, the book of Job is not relevant or applicable to me. Really? So we can't call it a discussion. That, that's a little bit too pedantic. Makes it sound as if some scholars are talking about a problem. Some commentators speak of each person's quote unquote contribution as if the main interest of the book lay in ideas or possible solutions to the academic question of suffering. The academics, you know, God bless them, love them, wish I was one of them. But you know what, uh, the uh, Jewish academics, they, they discussed the question of how many angels could dance on the head of a pin. Really, I don't know that that has any real... uh does it really inform my life if I came out? Yes, I've discovered that 1,382 angels can dance on the head of a pin. Well, good for you. You know, that'll get you your PhD dissertation, no doubt, and a bunch of paper. How many saw the movie, the 70s movie, The Paper Chase? I guess not. I'm showing my age. Anderson goes on to say to call it a debate, quote unquote, we can't call it a discussion. We can't call it a contribution. We can't call it a debate. He says to call it a debate suggests something more argumentative. You know, some people, when tragedy comes in their life, they're just like, oh, well, we'll get through this somehow. Have you ever a person like that? Just, I don't want to talk about it. Ordinary People, that's another movie you can watch. The man's marriage breaks up because the woman doesn't want to admit her son passed away, and she blames the other son for it. I don't want to talk about it. Let's just, I want my life to go back to what it was, normal. I don't want to talk about this. Call it a debate, suggest something more argumentative. You know, there's some things, tragic things that happen in people's life, and they get mad, and they get upset, and they get potty mouth, and they do the wrong thing. And God, in the end, in his great mercy, comes and shows himself to that person. And there's no answer to why this thing happened, but okay, God, not forcibly submitting, not being coerced to submit, but true, deeply felt surrender to God's will that. I understand God that it's gonna be okay. So you can't call it a debate because this also conveys the wrong impression of an intellectual exercise. The speeches are too long to be called conversation or even dialogue, which is what we, the handle that we use. There's not enough connection between them. So you say, well, You know what? I just love the Bible. I believe that every word of the Bible is inspired by God. I just love the Bible. You know what? Why you believe every word is the Bible? Because you don't read the Bible. If you read the Bible, you'd be scratching your head sometimes saying, What? This is in the Bible? God said go in and destroy them? Men, women, children, animals, everything? A fundamentalist, who are about to ruin our nation, by the way, because of this insipidly crass understanding of God's word, its stupidity on display. Here, you can quote me, because they have their canon of scripture. And their canon of scripture is a well-worn path through the pages of Holy Scripture, favoring what supports their assumed positions and ignoring those passages that might militate against them. You know what God has to say about Bildad, Eliphaz, and Zophar when he gets to the end? He says, what they've said about me is not right now. When we look at what they've said, we would if we analyze it, we say, well, what they've said is not really bad. I mean, we know that it's true. What a man sows, that shall he also reap. You know what? You can say something that is true, but your attitude is so stinky that God says, as Jesus did, do as they say, but don't do as they do. Oh, yes, it's quiet in here now. My father says, when it's quiet, set the plow a notch deeper. So we say, well, I'm going to read the book of Job, but I'm going to understand it. Well, I encourage you to do that. But the, but the book of Job, you know what? When you're dealing with God Almighty and Hasatan, the number one prosecuting attorney, attorney, in all the universe you have got you you have invited into your life something that you have no idea what's going on that's what job is overwhelmed by what in the world has happened to my life the next slide said an audience is implied so whoever constructed this middle poetic session, whatever we want to call it. We'll call it dialogue, for lack of a better better term. He's writing because he's writing for you. When you read the book, he's writing for you. Nobody, they're, they're, nobody wins this argument. Nobody really even... It's hard to connect the speeches one to another. We would like, you know, state your premise, then state the supporting evidence for your premise then come to a conclusion and apply it to the book of Job. That's our neat way of arguing. That's not in the book of Job. It's messy. It's this like when something bad happens to you. You'd like to have somebody come in your life and just say, well, now, this is what happened, and this is why this happened, and this is how you're going to get out of it, and God's a good God all the time, all the time. God is a good God. And sometimes messy stuff happens to us, and nobody can explain it. And you say, well, that's not the Christianity that I want. I want a God that's understandable, that explains himself, that gives me rational reasons to serve and love him. You are Job. You are trusting in your own self-righteousness. So the, the book is written for us. It makes it difficult because the speakers are not trying to convince one another even when they address each other. And this is why it is often hard, this is Anderson again, to find the connection between one speech and the next. That is why it is hard to trace progress in the discovery of the truth as the argument advances. This is why it is hard to ascribe a consistent and well-defined position to each of the four speakers. "Give Give me those quick notes on the book of Job. Again, he goes on, there's no use of formal logic. This is a man who knows the book of Job like the back of his hand in the original language. There's no use of formal logic to test the validity of the assertions made. The seemingly undirected discussion is truer to life than the studious pursuit of a theme by characters who are merely the author's puppet. The speeches are often emotional and sometimes resort to personalities. Job comes out one day and says, you guys are so smart. But I want you to know that when God was handing out smarts, He also gave me some smarts. Yeah, it's like a conversation we would have, you know, where where nerves are raw, people are pushed to the edge of their existence. Anderson says we we cannot often find in one speech a direct reply to the one immediately before making one a clue to the other. Have you ever been in a conversation like that? Everybody's talking at the same time. I've, I've done that so many times. with Conversation with Judy. Judy will say, George, stop talking because I want to hear what Alan says. Or Judy says, Alan, stop talking. I want to hear what George says. Well, she doesn't say that very often. So here it is. It is. I, I, in one slide, I'm going to give you kind of my best guess at what this the whole argument, conversation, discussion thing is. It has to do with divine retribution, meaning you reap what you sow. In other words, here is a Aristotelian syllogism. Here's the major premise: God destroys the wicked. We well, we would expect that of God. If you do the wrong, God is righteous and holy. He has uh, he is long-suffering to the righteous, but to the wicked, right? Psalm one: The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will be destroyed. So there's the major premise. The minor premise is: Job, you're being destroyed. So the conclusion is: Therefore, Job, you're wicked. And. If we want to submit ourselves to Greek logic, we would have to say, yeah. But, but Job rises up in, in, in wisdom, and he says, wait a minute. I haven't been wicked. And that destroys their whole reasoning. Well, the only reason that God would treat a person like this is because they're wicked. Job says, I'm not wicked. I love God always loved God. I always taught my family to do the right. I even sacrificed for my family. Imagine, imagine, that's like you going to church and praying on behalf of your kids. Does that work? I don't know if it works or not, but we all do it. So if we could summarize their arguments, we would say that Joel... Bildad, then under this scheme of divine retribution, in other words, Job, you've done something wrong, you need to repent, then hopefully God will bring you back into his quote-unquote graces. Bildad is kind of like Job, Job, you're a slight sinner. Eliphaz is like Job, you're a serious sinner. And Zophar is like Job, you're the worst of all. You are a secret. Hankins says, the ending of the dialogue is not in doubt. Job and his friends cannot agree. There's no agreement upon an understanding of Job's suffering. We're soon to close. They talk to Job. I love this. This is Anderson again. If you have kind of fell asleep or lost track, wake up, listen. They, meaning his friends, talk to Job about God. Job talks about God. And sometimes he addresses them, but much of Job's utterance is in an entirely different direction. People who have undergone tragic events in their life, you'll see that they're, it's all, they're disoriented. The president of the Jaguar Club, his grandson, they were in New York City, and his grandson got the feeling badly. They were in a hotel. The hotel called for a doctor. The doctor came and... He was just like, I want to go to bed. I want to go to sleep. I'm tired. The the hotel doctor came and uh, said, No, there's something seriously wrong there. They they took him to, uh, is it Sloan Kettering? Which I I said to Bob, his wife died. He asked me and Christy to come and hold kind of a memorial service, a short memorial service for for her at the end of the reception. I said to Bob, somebody was watching over you at TABOP. And he said, yep, you're right. Said, the, one, of, one of the handful of doctors in the country who was a specialist on what had afflicted Brandon, he had gotten an infection that had invaded beyond his sinuses and into his brain. And he happened to be in the hospital at that moment when they took him. And this had the potential. It was, it was a devastating disease. Infection, they took the whole top of his head off and created a 3D image of his skull so they could construct titanium plants to put his head back together. But it was a matter of being in the right place at the right time with the right people. And we'll see Brandon. Brandon's is just, what, 14 years old. He walks around kind of like, you know, he's not quite all back yet, but he's got a good prognosis. You see people off time that have gone through tragic events, they're like like the walking dead. This is what we hear from Job. Job's utterance is in an entirely different direction. Job is not arguing a point. (laughs) He's not arguing a point. He's trying to understand his experience. Hence, he often talks to himself, struggling in his own mind. He's also trying to retain or recover his lost friendship with God. and He appeals to God again and again. His prayers may shock his religious friends. You heard his opening prayer, the opening salvo in chapter 3. It is a shocking. His friends, here it is, his friends talk about God. God, Job talks to God. And this makes him the only authentic theologian in the book. I don't like what you said about me, God says to the friends. Job, you've gone through. I'm authorizing you and giving you the right to pray for you.
0: For more information on Covenant Community Church, visit us online at www.covcomchu.org. That's covcomchu.org. Or give us a call at 314-869-4367. At Covenant Community Church, it's our prayer that the preceding message has served to glorify Christ and further God's work in your life.